Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, it is indeed a goodly morning. It is, it is a goodly morning. In fact, someone came up to me at the game at half-time uh, we were winning 2-0 at the time and they mm-hmm. sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, looking good for a goodly morning on Monday. And I thought, oh, that's such a jinx, isn't it? But <laughs> we rode it out. I mean, we should have known that the Monday after we finally dropped Godram Mustafi would be a goodly morning. Very goodly. It's so goodly, in fact, that I've written a goodly morning rap. Wow. Can we hear it? No, I haven't actually done that. Oh, <laughs> I know my limitations. I was so excited. (laughs) After the Goodly Morning song, you know, after the North London Mm. Derby, I was like, is he going to top that? But No. I mean, you know. Not yet. I think you're right to let the memory rest. (laughs) Uh, It is a Goodly Morning, though, in general, because we have beaten Chelsea and the importance of this game on Saturday was apparent to everybody. We knew that if we were going to have any chance of finishing in the top four, keeping that fight alive anyway... We had to win the game, or or certainly we had to make sure we didn't lose. So to come out on top, to win 2-0, to cast some real doubt in the minds of uh, Chelsea as well, I guess, and their their manager, whose reaction was amazing after the game. I I thought his comments were, were really incredible, considering how much Chelsea dominated the second half in particular. You know, I'm not sure there was really an issue so much with their mentality or their lack of ferocity as their um, lack of uh, a forward or two. You know, it, yeah. it was it was more that, but I think it was nice that we inflicted that kind of damage on him and his psyche anyway. Yeah, it was it was really amazing. I mean, this has been brewing at Chelsea for a few weeks. Obviously, as you know, my brother's a Chelsea fan, so it's I've kind of got that bit of insight there. Yeah. And they... I have not been happy as a fan base at all, really, with Sari for a, a few weeks now. And it boiled over on Saturday. Um, and, you know, if you do a search on Twitter for hashtag Sari out, you'll find it's not just a kind of crazed minority. There are a lot of people who really are unhappy with the traje- trajectory of that team, which I find kind of weird. I mean, it's partly because I look at the league table and I see them above us and I think, wow, look how, look how upset they are. Mm. But... It just shows, I mean, football's fickle like that and had the result gone the other way, you know, we know what our own our own fan base could be like at times and yeah. maybe the knives would have been out too. So, it, yeah, it, it just shows how things fall. But this was a, a really good result and a really good performance, crucially, and a bit of a return to 
I suppose some of what had been really positive about Unai Emery's start at Arsenal. Yeah, I just did a quick Twitter search there for the uh, hashtag yeah. Sarri out, and I can see many. I can see many of them here. I like this one, which says, Maurizio Sarri, that is more busy in lighting cigarette than prepare for the next match is the one blaming my players? Wonders shall never end. Hashtag Sarri out. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah, I like I like this one that is um it says for the it's January 19th and it says for the first time hashtag sorry out. I like that he says that like sorry's been in there for like 5 years, you know what I mean? And he's finally reached breaking point. It's been 6 months. Yeah. We ain't winning shit with a stubborn bastard like this who cannot even see basics, who doesn't have a plan B, who starts dickheads week after week and who cannot start a prodigy like Callum Hudson-Odoi is wanted by Bayern. Sack him today. <laughs> <laughs> 62 retweets for that so wow. it's not it's not an unsupported view well here's another I, one here's another one that I found which might resonate a little we could do this for the whole thing yeah I can honestly see Chelsea fans in inverted commas tweeting Sarri out have a fucking word with yourselves you clueless twats probably started supporting the club a few years ago yes he's been doing some things wrong but it's fucking January and people forget he's implementing a new system hmm that man's mm. not going to get any. That man's not going to get any traction. He didn't get any retweets. Uh, yeah. re- <laughs> Is that what happens uh, with uh, with cow Twitter? You get retweets. I don't know, uh, but he he I, he got one like for that. Well, you know, it's kind of symbolic of the the culture that has existed at Chelsea, which has been a really short termist culture, mm-hmm. and one that has demanded results above all else, certainly above. Um, attractive football at times but you know it's been absolutely a results driven thing and they have shown no patience not giving any manager really time to bed in you know you remember Scolari being ushered out almost as soon as he was there and Mm. as soon as you know title winning sides under um, what's his name Ancelotti Ancelotti and even Mourinho to an extent you know the the knives were out and and you look at that and you think wow I I wouldn't I don't find it something to aspire to. No, I mean, um, I suppose it's the tone has been set from the very top by Roman Abramovich, who's been yes. very quick to, to change coaches and managers. But, you know, it does perhaps also sum up the modern football fan in a way. There is this lack of patience. We've seen it at Arsenal. That's why I read out that tweet, because exactly. we saw similar tweets about Unai Emery, and Unai Emery had a point to prove. He had three points to gain and a point to prove against Chelsea on Saturday. It was, I'm not going to say a turning point or, or something like that, but it felt going into this game that if it went badly, it would really make life difficult for Emery and for people to buy into what he's doing. He so badly needed a result and a performance. We certainly got the result, the performance we can touch on. I thought it was uh, very good, particularly in the first half, maybe in the second half, not so much, but it did what it was supposed to do, I guess, in terms of keeping Chelsea out. So let's start with the lineup. I was really pleased to see a back four. Uh, I was pleased to see Socrates and Koscielny chosen as the two central defenders. I was a little surprised to see the midfield three set up the way it was. Uh, like Alex Iwobi, who was very good, I thought, against West Ham. Well, comparatively, he was good against West Ham. But he dropped down, and it was it was quite interesting the way he deployed his midfield because I was looking at the heat maps for this, and Genduzzi was... Uh, 
position to the left, Shaka mm-hmm. in the middle, Torreira to the right, and Ramsey ahead. I suppose what you would call a, a diamond, uh, but it was it worked very nicely. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it worked really well, and and ahead of them, obviously, you had Ramsey playing centrally with. Aubameyang and, and Lacazette as kind of split strikers, which yeah. is sort of what we did in the second half against Spurs and had been very effective then and was so in this game. And it was kind of interesting seeing, you know, Torreira and Kante, two players who typically you think of as kind of defensive-minded midfielders. They were yeah. both playing on the right-hand side of a diamond. And for us, you know, we engaged that press that we haven't really seen much of in recent weeks. And I know Emery spoke about it after the game and why he's not using it in every single match, but he, with Jorginho, you know, looking to be on the ball, they chose to deploy it in this game. And that's where it makes sense to play Torreira further up the field because he was so important, I thought, in yeah. in setting the tempo, along with others like Lacazette. Yeah, I thought Ramsey's role was quite interesting too, wasn't it? That he stuck very close to Jorginho. Uh, yeah. I won't say it was like a Martin Keown man-marking job, but it wasn't far off it at times. You could see him always looking around, looking to see where Jorginho was. And and we know how crucial he is to Sarri in terms of how he wants his team to play. So if you if you try and negate his qualities and, and don't give him time on the ball... Uh, it's quite effective, and I think that was the case, particularly in the in the first half. Ramsey uh, was very disciplined, did a great job, I thought, on on uh, on Jorginho. And James, I think the the other thing that really stands out for me is a the other thing, two things then that stand out for me: a the fact that we started really brightly the way we did against Tottenham we came out of the blocks and we were absolutely on it from the start creating chances we should have been ahead before we did actually score but overall then a first half in which we turned up did the job we were supposed to do scored a couple of goals uh, made life very difficult for Chelsea and even if we weren't at our best in the second half we had something to protect rather than having to go and get something from a position where we're drawing or behind yeah that's it I mean we had a two goal advantage you know to a certain extent we could afford to sit in I mean I'm not sure how deliberate it was Chelsea had a lot of the ball they generally do but it wasn't like they created a host of clear-cut chances no. it was one shot on target in the whole game and to be honest I think a lot of credit there has got to go to the two centre-halves. You know, switching to a back four was, I suppose, a little bit risky simply in that we haven't deployed it in recent weeks. But I think Koscielny and Socrates are the two best centre-halves we have on our books, especially with Rob Holding injured. And I thought they were both excellent. And yeah. P- particularly Koscielny. I mean, he got the goal. What a brilliant moment for him. That was <clears throat> at 100% intentional, I'm sure, off the shoulder. Oh, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. A sure. nonchalant flick of the of the right shoulder. Uh, but I thought they were brilliant together. And one thing that struck me is, you know, Koscielny's three years older than Socrates. He's been here longer. But Socrates was the sort of the dominant organiser. He was the guy, you know, shouting and pulling people into positions. And that's actually what suits Koscielny. If you think of Koscielny's best football, it's been with a natural organiser alongside him in Per Mertesacker. Yeah, good point. There were signs that Socrates could maybe be that guy for Koscielny. Because, I I mean, Koscielny's performance, I didn't think we'd see him play that well again, to be honest. It was brilliant. You could see it took a lot out of him, actually, uh, Mm. physically. And I'm not sure it's just to do with the fact that he's coming back. I think he really just had one of those games where he played at 100% from the first minute to the 90th minute. His reading of the game was absolutely immaculate. 
you know, he made 12 clearances, I think, in the entire game, which is more than Chelsea as a team made, which maybe speaks to uh, what we did at the other end uh, in the second half, especially. But he was in the way of everything. He made tackles, he made blocks, he made interceptions. He was dangerous from set pieces. And I think, yes, himself and Socrates uh, do seem to work together in a way that um, he doesn't work with, with others. I don't want to, you know, name names, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just think there's a, a, a balance there. And as I say, I think Koscielny, I know he's the club captain, but I think defensively he's always been at his best when he's slightly deferential to a sort of senior partner. And Socrates, you know, there's a lot to love about him. You know, the way he celebrated the ball going out for a, was it a goal kick yeah. rather than a corner? And he's sort of, you know, pumping his fists. It's what you... As a fan, you know, you really want to see that stuff from a defender. And he had that good balance, I thought, against Chelsea of being aggressive without being too aggressive. Yeah, you know what's interesting about Socrates as well is that I think in the summer and when people were analysing what kind of a defender he was, they spoke about how physical he is and how he'll, in, he'll relish that kind of the game, the physical side of the game and how English football might suit uh, a player like him because you might get away with a bit more in England physically than you would do in other leagues but there were some concerns about his use of the ball uh, I mm. thought he was really solid and has been really solid all season in terms of uh, his passing I think his passing numbers were up in the 90s uh, against Chelsea and they usually are I think he's a better footballer than people might like to think That's a, a really good point I mean his passing actually was 92% which was by far the best on the, the team, actually. Mm. And 10 of those 50 passes that he played were long balls, uh, which is pretty decent. Six of those long balls were accurate. So not a bad ratio at all. I think you're right. He has been better on the ball than maybe we were led to believe. And some of the stats coming out of Dortmund did suggest that. Interestingly, mm. I mean, this is just a sort of side note, but our passing accuracy ac across the game was, was really low for what you'd expect. I mean, a, a player like Lucas Torreira... 62%, Matteo Guendouzi, mm. 73%, you know, Kalasnach, 65%. Do you know um, what was amazing as well? Uh, Aubameyang, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang made five passes in the entire wow. game. It's, wow. you know, I think it's interesting uh, to look at those kind of stats, isn't it, and think, well, that defines a performance, uh, how he uses the ball. But when you think about what Aubameyang did off the ball and the work he did defensively, you, it really shows you that you have to look at the bigger picture rather than just look at the numbers. Yeah, but I mean, you know, all season long, we've said that Unai Emery sets up his team to play in a certain fashion game by game. And what's clear is that this was a, a very tailored game approach. I mean, 10 long balls for Socrates, 10 long balls for Granit Xhaka, 18 long balls for Bern Leno. We went longer far more often in this game than we than we normally would, uh, you know. Clearly, there were there were specific tactical points set up by Emery to make this work and get this result. And another element to that is the efficiency at both ends of the pitch. You know, we spoke about Koscielny winning so many duels, making mm. so many clearances in his own box. And similarly, you know, it's not like we had we had good chances, particularly in the first half, but. You know, we, we were relatively efficient with them. I know we might have scored a couple more, maybe. Certainly, Aubameyang will think about that early miss. But mm. after the match, Sari spoke about that. And he, in his press conference, said uh, that he, he was really angry with Chelsea for not being efficient enough. 
at the two ends of their pitch, but he spoke about that as a psychological thing. You know, he, he didn't speak about it as a kind of statistical outlier. He said, you know, there was a focus from Arsenal in the way they performed at both mm-hmm. ends of the box. And I think sometimes we're so keen to look at the numbers and say, well, the numbers were leaving themselves out, you know, the numbers. But actually... You could see the focus, I think, in those Arsenal players. You could see their determination. And that does bring itself to bear. Um, and Sari was aware of that too. So I thought this was... They, they, Arsenal played like a team who knew they absolutely had to win this game. Yeah. They treated it a little bit like a cup final. And to be honest, it was. You know, It doesn't really bear thinking about where we would have been without the win. It's very true. It's very true. And we needed a response. And you know, it can happen when you go through a bad spell and then you have a bad result like we did against West Ham. You you have to show you can respond, and your your primary way of doing that, of course, you've got to work on your organisation, your tactical setup, and everything else. But it is the fact that you put in the effort. And I know some people will say, well, it's an intangible. You can't really see hard work, but you can. You can see when a team is is really putting in the yards. And we did that. I think the the stat on Match of the Day showed that we'd run uh, further than any other game since the 2013-14 season. On its own, not a particularly uh, illustrative stat. But when it's added to the performance that we saw, when you look at... W- what kind of running we did. It wasn't just helter-skelter. You had Alexandra Lacazette chasing back and winning a tackle on the edge of our box. Aubameyang doing the same thing. Players uh, pressing, players uh, harrying the Chelsea players. Uh, Like you say, pushing forward, uh, making sure they didn't have time on the ball in the first half in particular. You know, there was method to the running. It wasn't just let's run around because we need to show that we're up for it. There was there was uh, a reason for it. And I think it was reflected in the result. Yeah, and when you look at the three midfielders who were playing just in front of Granite Xhaka, Torreira, Ganduzi, Ramsey, I mean, they've got such legs on them, haven't mm. they? I mean, you know, there's so much energy there. And uh, presumably that's kind of why Ganduzi was picked, you know, because of the sheer amount of ground he's capable of covering in 90 minutes is is remarkable. Uh, and, you know, I, I, they set the tempo. I thought that, you know, we, we'll get onto the strikers because I think Lacazette as well, showed what an important player he can be in these kinds of games. You know, the the change in him from last season in terms of what he brings physically is enormous. And uh, he was a a vital component too in terms of helping to initiate the press, but also holding the ball up when when it was required. So look, let's let's talk to, talk to, let's talk about the goals. Uh, The chance Aubameyang missed uh, was amazing. Another one for for his blooper reel, I guess. Um, yeah. it, it, it's weird because he does score so many goals and miss so many chances. It reminds me a little bit of, do you remember the season when Adibayor scored 30 goals for Arsenal? Yeah. But he probably should have had about 45. Do, do you remember? <laughs> yeah. I, can't, I can't remember the misses, really. I don't rem- yeah, well, remember that's, it necessarily that's time being for a thing. You, I guess. Yeah. But there was definitely a lot of criticism for him in that season that he was missing a lot of chances. But it was, you know, he had these amazing physical attributes and they were helped him get so many chances. It's, it just reminds me a little bit of that with Aubameyang. I feel as well that, uh, you know, he, he probably has missed a few more in recent weeks than he would like. There was an amazing stat, actually. Did you see this stat? I think Elliot from uh, the Arsenal Vision podcast tweeted it. Do you mind if I quickly dig it Yeah, out? no, go ahead. Um, uh, let me see if I can find it because it was about how many chances he's missed recently as opposed to um, in like a 
in the first part of the season or something. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Sorry, it's taking me a bit of time. No, that's fine. You know, don't worry about the listeners or anything. You know, don't do your preparation. Yeah, they, they can live, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the worst thing is he'll probably um, have this... Uh, have this on the Arsenal Vision podcast, you know, ready to go. So I've sort of just start, tried to steal his thunder and completely failed. Still failing. I suspect it's a busy timeline, though, Elliot, if you're digging your thing. way through it, yeah. OK, we've got it. Hurrah! We've got it. At last. And it's, come, it's from one David Wall originally on Twitter. So Aubameyang this season, right, up to including the Spurs game on the 2nd of December, um, had 10 big chances. Right. Uh, statistically which was one every 104 minutes, mm-hmm. and he converted six of those 10 big chances, so at a ratio of 60%. Sure. Now, since then, since the Spurs game, 2nd of December, he's actually had 13 big chances. So they have occurred every 61 minutes. So he's getting far more chances, but he's converted just one. Oh, wow. So an 8% conversion. So 60% before pre-Spurs and 8% since. So 60% 60 is too high. Yes. Right? You can't maintain... Even for a big chance, probably, yeah. Yeah, you can't maintain that, whereas 8% is is definitely too low. I'd love to know what the mean is for what you might consider a top striker. So we could... I'm sure someone out there knows... Yeah, that's true. It's, but it's interesting that he's sort of either he's creating or the team are creating more chances for him, but he's, he's taking less of them at this point. And wow. that's, I guess, why it's so eye-catching. It is, and it was an eye-catching miss. Uh, Socrates headed wide. Koscielny probably should have scored, but I think he did as much as you could reasonably expect him to do in that situation. You know, with the header, he put it on target. I don't think the keeper knew a thing about it, just hit off him uh, and went over the bar. It was one of those that could easily have just taken a a slightly uh, less touch off the keeper and gone in, you know, Mm. so it looked like an amazing save. with the shoulder, really. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think he learned his lesson. He learned his lesson. But then we got the first goal... And I think this is a a really, really brilliant goal by Alexandro Lacazette. I think watching it again this morning, it's one of those I think we're going to talk about or probably deserves a bit more credit than it's got. I know people were saying, what a goal, fantastic. But when you look at the three touches and then the finish, the Mm. finish really is something else because it's quite deliberate the way he hits the ball because he's got to get it up and get it in at the near post. I made the comparison in in the blog yesterday. It's like a golfer punching the ball out of the rough. The way he sort of hit it down and up, uh, just fucking absolutely brilliant goal. And he's scored a few like that at the near post, hasn't he? He's he's quite dangerous in that position. Yeah, I mean, this I've rarely seen shots hit with the exact technique Lacazette produce for this one I mean it was so deliberate it, you know and of course it was a powerful strike but it wasn't just that it was the way he kind of lifted the ball mm. uh, it really was brilliant and the, th- the three touches it is I think you know were all exquisite to help him set it up so you know because it's not a great ball in from Bellerin but Lacazette sort of rescues it turns his man and fires in the shot and the collection of goals that he's put together this season is Quite stunning, actually. Some of the finishes. I mean, I always think of that Cardiff one, but I mean, this is right up there too. And uh, yeah, just a, a brilliant, brilliant strike and a great way to open the scoring. You know, it's one of those goals that sort of 
at the stadium sort of rose to greet and it lifted everybody in the crowd. And yeah. it felt like a statement goal from Lacazette. And I thought this was a statement performance from him. I thought he showed throughout the game how important he is. Yeah, I thought he was I thought he was really good and it was a, a big, big goal and he does have a tendency a tendency to score in these big games, doesn't he? So um Yeah, uh, I mean he's he, you know, he's been a really good uh contributor in those in those games. So yeah. justified his selection certainly. For sure. Now one of the things that's been a a hallmark of life under Unai Emery mm. has been our tendency to concede not long after we score. We've mm. seen it more than once this season. And perhaps in the fog of uh, victory and euphoria at beating Chelsea, we just maybe overlooked the fact that we came very close to doing exactly that. It was a brilliant ball from David Luiz to Pedro, who beat the offside trap, and he lobbed Bernd Leno and put it just, just wide. And it was literally inches wide. So a great yeah. chance for Chelsea to get back into the game. Um do you know, I, I mean, it's funny, you know, we've, you say we forget that. I had forgotten that. Had you? <laughs> it's weird how your mind kind of, and that was right in front of me, you know, where I was mm. where I was watching. And uh, yeah, it's funny how your mind will kind of erase instances from the game. I haven't seen it on a replay, but the feeling in the crowd was that he was offside, but presumably we no. were wrong about that. Yeah, you're well wrong. He was onside. It was a brilliantly timed run and a, a, a brilliant ball from Louise, who does have that in his yeah. locker, along with being a massive prick. Um sure. You know, and that obviously would have changed the complexion of the game. It didn't, but uh, we don't need to dwell on it too much. And then the second goal, I have to say, uh, in the blog yesterday, I've done Socrates a terrible disservice uh, in, in that I said it looked like he shinned the ball into the box. I think it was quite deliberate. Having watched it again this morning and watched all the replays, when Luis concedes the free kick, Torreira hits it to Kolasinac, uh, who nods it down to Socrates, whose ball into that area is absolutely 100% deliberate. So not only is he a brutalizing shithouser of the highest order, he's got a bit of finesse as well. That was as good an assist as I think you'll see, even if the finish from Koscielny was perhaps a touch on the fortunate side. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic. I'm having to watch it again now. Watch it. Watch it. Seriously, I'm going to watch I it again. I assumed like you that it's just a sort of centre-half panicking when the ball drops no. in the final third and you know, kicking it vaguely towards goal. But having watched it again just then, I think you might be right. Here man. it is. I'm watching I'm watching the free kick it's now. It's a lovely contact he makes with it, outside of the foot. Mm-hmm. Beautiful ball. He might be looking for Aaron Ramsey, who's coming around the back post, maybe, but he finds Koscielny perfectly. No, you're right. I mean... He's just put it in there. Proud. He's put it in the mixer. He's <laughs> put it in the mixer. And Koscielny was the one who went for it. You know, when you look at when you look at the positioning when Koscielny uh, heads the ball in, have a look at just have a look at uh, how many Chelsea players are in there. Mm. One, two, I'm just looking at it here. Okay, here we yeah, go. There's, he's one, two, three, four, five, five defenders, and that ball goes over the head of five defenders. Uh, the number five, whoever the fuck that is, that's Jorginho. Um, Ramsey's there at the back post. If the ball goes there, he would have been there for for a tap in. Yeah. But Koscielny's in there with five defenders. Boom! They're all standing there looking, going, "What the fuck?" David Luiz turning around, going, "What? What? What happened?" You know, it's What's a- quite nice as well. Is once uh, Socrates volleys the ball into the box 
quite early, his hands go up as if to say, yes! <laughs> like he's, he's, he's very pleased with his contribution. Hang on, I have to watch that bit again. Uh, oh, it's on the replay, it, is it? Yeah, on the big wide uh, replay. Okay, I'm going to wait for the big wide replay because uh, here we go. It's come back and there's Socrates. Doink, sticking it in there. Yes! He knows what he's done. He's he loving it. He's, he's yeah. loving it. Well, you would, wouldn't you? One centre-half crossing it for the other one to score. And I don't think it's coincidence, by the way, that we're talking about this Koscielny goal and that uh, Kepa had to make a good save from another Koscielny header. You know, you forget that is something he does really bring. He's got a real knack of of finding opportunities in the box from set pieces. So uh, another reason it's good to have him back in the side. Wasn't there a stat about how he has scored in all nine seasons that he's been at Arsenal, which for a centre-half is really a fantastic uh, yeah. a fantastic record. So, uh, yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant uh, to, to see him score. And you could see how much it meant to him as well. When you consider everything that he's been through, when you consider the injury and the, uh, you know, we all watched the documentary, didn't we, when uh, it sort of went over how difficult and how torturous his, his comeback was. Um, it was fantastic to see him score from a, you know, footballing point of view, just as a fan point of view, but on a human level as well. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. And uh, and like I say, I didn't necessarily think he had this kind of performance in him. I'm not even sure at this point that we can say we can expect this level of performance from him regularly until the end of Mm. the season. I think that would be perhaps a bit of a stretch. But, you know, there are certain players, certain defenders especially, who are so good and can be good you know, in a one-off big game that it's almost worth having them for that reason alone. Look at the way Manchester City have managed someone like Vincent Company, despite all his problems. You know, there have been times where he's kind of been rolled out for certain games and produced and performed. And mm. I'd love to see Koscielny more frequently than that. But even if it is just that that we get from him, I think it's it's definitely great to have him back in the squad. And I, impossible to be anything other than delighted for him. Mm. Another thing, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Chelsea hit the post just before halftime. Yeah. Mark- Marcus Alonso, Alonso yeah, who is uh, basically history's greatest monster. Uh, mm. He is really um, stepping up to fill the gap left by John Terry as the biggest fucking prick <laughs> there is. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I just can't bear the sight of him. But second half, what, what did you make of it? I, I expected a response from mm. Chelsea. I wasn't surprised when they dominated the first 10 or 15 minutes of the half. Well, we've always been a first-half team, Andrew. Yeah. (laughs) But I did expect us at some point in the second half to have a period where we control the game just a little bit, you know, turn the tide. I'm not sure we did. We had some chances, of course, to to score again. There was one brilliant opportunity. Well, there's two maybe I think of. There was... um, Bellerin down the right-hand side. And I think had it not been his first game back, he would have made a first-time cross rather than take a touch. Uh, he couldn't believe it. He he just stood there for about 15 seconds with his hands on his head afterwards. Mm. He couldn't believe that he, he hadn't managed yeah. to find Lacazette there. And there was another one with Kolasinac where, again, yeah. there was you could make a good case for him having a shot rather than trying the cutback. There's, There's been, been a couple a of moments. Those. Yeah, there have been. Uh, and I think maybe... It might be down to the coaching staff 
to just tell him, have, about yeah, have a go. Well, maybe, but maybe tell him, have a go, vary it a little, because it looks mm. like that's what he's going to do every time. And if that's what he's going to do every time, then it becomes easier for the opposition to read. So if he can vary what he does when he gets into those positions, it just maybe creates a little bit of a doubt. So next time he goes for the cutback, it might be, uh, might find the, the right target. But Chelsea pretty much dominated the entire second half. Um, what what did you make of the the substitutions? Um, so what were the changes? Let's have a look. So it will had... be in Maitland Niles for Ramsey and Lacazette. Yeah, I mean the thing is, I didn't have an issue with them at the time at all. Mm, um, I kind of did. Go on then. Why? I could see some sense in it because I think the two of them ran themselves ragged. They they worked very hard. Mm. I think maybe taking off one of them would have been a better idea. I think yeah. if you were well, going to... change the shape as well. That's the thing, you know, because they came on for, for two players who've been playing centrally and they both played wide. So we went to more of a yeah. conventional 4-3-3. Yeah, um, fair enough. I mean, look, I think maybe what I would have done first is Iwobi for Ramsey and left Lacazette on. I, you know... Um, yeah, I mean, but look, I'm not complaining or anything. I just it's just what I would have done at the time. Uh, yeah, I feel it, like it all worked out. I might be wrong, but I feel like Ramsey hasn't really played 90 minutes under Unai Emery. I feel like he never quite uh, lets that happen. I know some will say the same with Lacazette as well. I wonder if Ramsey, if there's just an awareness of those history of muscular problems, might be in his mind. I, I so at the time I thought there was a, a reasonable explanation for it, which was that. Chelsea were pushing on a little bit on the overlap with the fullbacks. Mm. Putting some wide players there was sort of an attempt to pin them back, and also with Iwobi and Maitland Niles, give you a bit of pace and an outlet on the break. And I suppose that was also the logic for leaving Aubameyang on. I mean, mm. invariably Aubameyang gets is more gets more ninety minutes than Lacazette, and I think it is because he can sprint in that last 10, 15 minutes yeah. in a way that Lacazette perhaps can't. However. It's difficult to argue that changes worked especially well. I do have a bit of sympathy with Emery simply because it wasn't long until we lost Bellerin. And so whatever that plan yeah. was, yeah, kind of it went out the window. That's true. That's true. I think that had an effect because Maitland-Niles then had to go in uh, uh, right back. Um, we'll touch on the Bellerin injury, uh, I think, in part two, because we've got questions uh, about sure. that and what we might do with it. But yeah, you're right to say it did have an impact on, on the, the changes because it was only, what, Five two minutes, minutes was it? Yeah. Two or three minutes. Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah. But uh, of you, course, yeah, because, sorry, it says Bellerin came off 71st minute, but he was lying down on the pitch for three minutes before that. So, yeah, um, exactly. Not much time at all. No, and like terrible to see the injury to him on his first game back. And uh, it, it does look like a very serious one, uh, but we'll, we'll have a chat about that. So, um, Chelsea, though, as you said, had only one shot on target. In yeah, the, it was kind of sterile possession, wasn't it? I mean, we, we've sterile seen domination, do that yeah, many times. Yeah, that's what Arsene Wenger used to call it: sterile domination. When you've lots of the ball and do fuck all with it. I mean, I know people point to the fact that they they didn't have a forward on the pitch for for quite a while, but they did have a forward on the pitch for what? Well, when did they bring Giroud on? Um, uh, Giroud came on on the sixty seventh, sixty yeah, sixty eighth yeah. minute. So for the last 22 minutes plus six minutes of 
uh, injury time, which is basically half an hour of football, they did have a striker on. Mm. And they still didn't create anything. So I think we have to give more credit to the way Arsenal defended and cut out the supply lines and made life difficult for the likes of Hazard. Uh, William, of course, went off for, for Giroud, um, Pedro, etc. But, you know, we we defended really well. We defended really well. And I think we deserve more credit for our good defending than Chelsea need criticism from their side of the fence for their bad attacking. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it is a, a little bit of both. But certainly when you look at our defence... They all played really well. I mean, mm. you know, having Hector Bellerin back was such a big boost, and obviously that makes losing him particularly painful. But the centre halves we've spoken about, I thought Kalasnac actually had you know one of his better games defensively. Yeah. I thought yeah. he stood up to the challenge really well and still found time to get forward on the overlap. So that was really positive for him actually to play in a back four and have that balance. I think is a really good sign. Yeah, and I think the the defensive work done by the likes of sort of Gunduzi and Torreira was just fantastic. I mean, Torreira, I think, made nine tackles, it says here, three clearances. Ganduzi, so. I think, made, attempted ten tackles. Yeah. Won five or six of them. And, you know, to be fair to the guy, I had some concerns last week uh, about his performance against West Ham and whether we were asking too much too soon of him. But he was really, really good. Really good. And I think the the midfield itself was really good. I think it suits the players we have to play in that way. Uh, so credit to him. And I think maybe it's a little bit of a blueprint um, in terms of what we need to do, whether the Bellerin injury changes how Unai Emery is going to look at things defensively. We can discuss in in the second half of the show with the questions and what have you, but overall a huge win, one we badly needed. And, you know, when you're on a bad run of form, you need something to kind of not just halt the momentum, but to push you in the right uh, in the right way. And I think, I hope anyway, that this result, this performance can do that. Um, and it's not really been, apart from that Liverpool game away, it's not really been the way we've played against the big teams. That's the issue. I think yeah, it's, you're right. I think it's perhaps the way we've approached some of the games against so-called smaller or inferior opposition. And I hope from this Chelsea performance, Unai Emery looks at what he got from his team and looks at what he can get from his team when we're set up in this way. And I think maybe in some of those other games, we have been a bit too cautious, a bit too deferential to the opposition. I'm not saying you should just expect to turn up and roll over a smaller team or anything like that. You know, that's that's not the approach I'm talking about. But what I do think is that when you are playing those teams, if you become overly cautious, it can... What way am I trying to explain this? I'm trying to say maybe that you sort of hand the initiative to the, to the opposition? Yeah, in, in some, some ways. ways, yeah, exactly. That if you, if you turn up and play the way we did in the first half against the likes of Southampton, West Ham, Brighton, you know, if you show your intent from the first whistle then I think it can put the opposition on the back foot and it changes the complexion of the game, the dynamic of the game. Whereas if you go in overly cautious and with a back five and two deep-lying midfielders and no way to connect your midfield and attack, it allows those teams to take an initiative against you that they can't if you're, if you're really having a go at them. 
and again, it's not to say just be gung-ho, but it's to sort of trust in the attacking players that we have and the ability they have to produce, particularly when you've got a defence that, you know, isn't always as solid as we would like it to be. And I think there was something quite telling about what Lauren Koscielny said after the game. He said that, you know, the, the clean sheet, was very welcome, you know, it was put to him that this was a, a precious thing and he said, yeah, it's great and we defended very well, but it wasn't just the defenders that defended well. You know, it was how we approached the game, how we pressed, how we made life difficult for Chelsea, eased the job that the de- the defenders had to do. It gave us a platform to defend well and also attack well. So I'd like to see maybe just a bit more initiative from Unai Emery when we go and play those kind of teams. It's interesting because I, I think, you know, if we'd picked this team in certain other games and maybe we'd pick this team against a team that had played in a low block and tried to defend, I think we might have had issues breaking them down. You know, I, I remember the Huddersfield game when Shaka, Ganduzi and Torreira all started and after the match people were saying, he's played three defensive midfielders, you know, no wonder we can't uh, break anybody down. You know, we didn't have Alex Awobi in the team. We didn't have Meza Ozil in the team, mm. two of our more creative players. I, I personally think that it's the attitude that really makes the difference and sets the agenda. Because I think Unai Emery is going to continue tailoring his team game by game. I, I'm not even convinced that he'll play this, this shape against Manchester United next week. You know, I think it will depend on the opponent every time. But I thought what was there was and that has been there in all the good Emery games has been that hunger and that bite and that physical competitiveness and that physical assertion. Okay. And I think that's, for me, the, the key component that Arsenal need to retain. And I think that goes sort of above and beyond the, the oh, system. OK, but do you not think that the it's easier for the players... Not easier, but the players kind of buy into the formation and what we're being asked to do. Like, I I think there's probably a correlation between trying to play some decent attacking football and the effort. You know, I know what you're saying about the attitude, but I also think that when you're playing the game on the front foot and you're trying to take control of it and you're trying to make chances, it's kind of easier to display those characteristics. Whereas if you're sitting off and you're inviting pressure, you can become a bit um, introverted in terms of how you approach the game. Like you can still run around, but I don't think it's as apparent. Yeah, I kind of know what you mean. I I just think when I look at this team, this, this particular game, you know, I look at it and say, well, we came out of it with 36% possession it was quite a reactive performance. You know, even winning the ball high up the field was is a, is a sort of counter strategy. However high you win it, uh, it, you're still sort of countering off opposition possession. And I don't think in a home game against Burnley, we're going to have the same issues and require the same solutions. You know, there will be games where it's like, we're playing against two banks of five. And so you need a wide player to help you get your overlaps in you know you mm. need someone who can help you dictate play in the in the final third of the pitch like a Meza Ozil whoever it might be so whilst I agree that there's like great things from this blueprint of this performance I personally don't necessarily think 
therefore we we should adopt this formation in every game. Hmm. But you know, I, I really like this formation. I think it's it was incredibly effective against a team like Chelsea. I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that it would be effective against everybody. Maybe it would be, but I don't think that's what Emery thinks. And I I think he'll continue to mix it up. Right. Personally, I don't have an issue with that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, look, we'll wait and see. I just think that if you if you go to somewhere like Southampton or go to West Ham or go to Brighton and you invite pressure on yourself, knowing that you already have a defence that's dodgy as fuck, you know, I, I think you're asking for trouble and trouble is exactly what we got. I I understand that we had issues in terms of injuries and absences and it was all a bit makeshift at the back for a little while. But if we go to one of these mid-table, lower mid-table teams again away from home and go with a back three and, you know, we, we play two deep-lying midfielders who are sitting and, and shielding that back five, our only creative outlet is is Kalasinac and Iwobi or something like that, I'll be very disappointed because I think the team and the players are capable of better. And I think what we saw against Chelsea was an illustration of that. So anyway, we'll wait and see. Yeah, I, I would be inclined to agree. I'm not desperate to see that. I'm not desperate to see five defenders and two holding midfielders. But I, I just, I do, yeah, I, I still think he'll he'll change it. But hopefully with primarily a back four. Oh, that's the bell. That's the that's end the of bell. part one bell. That, that exactly it is. We'll take a break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. Just a reminder that if you're not already, you can become an Arsblog member on Patreon, which gives you access to lots of extra content, articles, podcasts, video live streams. You also get a free download of the uh, the book together, the story of Arsenal's unbeaten season, the audio book version. I 
I should say. You get a free download of that when you uh, when you sign up. It costs just five euros a month plus VAT if you're in the EU. So please feel free to sign up and help support everything we do here on Arsblog, uh, the podcast, Arsblog News, coverage of the youth teams, uh, the women's team, and all the stuff about the uh, the club in general. This week, there's some new stuff going up. There's going to be a brand new Passcast Extra in which James and I discuss the 5-4 victory over Tottenham in 2004. 2004, an amazing game at White Hart Lane. We discussed that as if it had just happened, which is quite fun. And you've also got an episode of My Arse, James, with Luke Kempner, who is a comedian and impressionist. Uh, A really good uh, chat as well. Yeah, really fun stuff with Luke, talking about his highlights as an Arsenal fan. Some great anecdotes in there, particularly uh, when he got to do his impression of Arsene Wenger for Arsene Wenger. So definitely, if you're a member, tune in. And if you're not a member, get right on it. Brilliant. Okay. well, look, uh, we'll leave people to go and do that if they want to do that. If you don't, that's also fine. But we thank you, as always, uh, for your support. It's hugely appreciated. James, we've got to get on with the uh, with the questions, Mm. a lot of them about Hector Bellerin and what we do uh, in terms of replacing him. Uh, First up, I mean, just terrible to see a player go down with an injury like that. And it's very... Uh, unlucky for Unai Emery to have three players, um, we assume, to have suffered season-ending long injuries uh, during his first campaign. All three of those players, crucial to how he wants his team to play, and they've robbed us of of real options. So really terrible for Emery, but first and foremost uh, for Hector himself, who looks like he's going to spend a considerable amount of time on the sidelines, uh, and we wish him all the best and speedy recovery, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's really a shame to see Hector Bellerin injured. He just seems like a great guy. I really like mm. Hector Bellerin. Setting aside what an excellent player I think he is and what an important player he is to this team. I mean, this might be a, a good time to sort of segue into a first question, simply because I know you said it's incredibly unlucky and unfortunate, and there's no doubting that. But Leo Matilla, who's at Leo Matilla 9 on Twitter, says... Do you think the number of injuries we've had this season has anything to do with Emery's methods? Do you think it is pure bad luck or do you think there's anything more to it? I I don't know. I mean, I think we have now probably the most or one of the most advanced fitness setups in English football, if not European Mm. football, with uh, Darren Burgess, the head of high performance, um, Shad Forsyth as well. You know, they monitor everything. They monitor every tiny little thing about a player, his performance, his physical, uh, what he might be suffering, all those kind of things. So I'm not sure it is anything other than bad luck. Like Danny Welbeck, I don't think there's anything to do with Emery's methods uh, to do with Danny Welbeck's injury. I think holding is just a bit unlucky. Maybe you could say he was overplayed, but I think it was a case that he put his foot down on that kind of slopey bit. Yes, well, I don't know. I was watching the Spurs um, game, Fulham Spurs, yesterday, and in Sky mm. commentary, they mentioned, uh, just in passing, really, that they had heard that Rob Holding's injury was something to do, not necessarily even with the slopey bit, but with the fact that that's actually fake grass um, at the side of the pitches. And they were saying more and more players are getting injured by it. That wow. when they put their foot 
from the real turf, which is like inside the lines essentially, onto the fake turf, which is outside the lines, and it's much slippier than the normal ground, mm. and it's causing a lot of injuries. And they cited Rob Holding as uh, one of the injuries where this has been a factor. Right. Apparently, the Premier League is is going to look into this because it's it's quite dangerous. A bit like you know when they have those sort of big sort of TV camera pits that we've seen players go into in the past. You know, it's a, yeah. something that does actually put the players in considerable danger. Right. So hopefully some good comes out of the Rob Holding thing and maybe they, they stop leaving that slippy uh, trap all around the side yeah. of the field. So I think, that was, I think that was really just bad luck. And obviously the Bellerin one, there was nobody... Well, there was. Marcus Alonso was near him. And a bit like Diego Costa in the semi-final, my immediate thought was that Alonso had done something to to Bellerin, but unfortunately it was one of those where you could see in the replays, which are quite um, hard to look at, aren't they, where the the tendon, you can see the tendon go doink, um, mm. and we'll have to wait and see exactly what the, the diagnosis is. I presume we'll get something on that early this week, if not today. But the question remains, what do we do? So Andrew Brown, who's at the underscore Grice, says it's time for Carl, isn't it? Um Hmm. Barath, who's at Barath11 underscore. Time for Jenkinson to shine. Leon Smith, who's at Irwin McFruity. I'm gutted for Hector, and this will have a big impact on the way we play. My preference for right back would be Ainsley Maitland-Niles. However, what's your feeling about playing Mustafi there? I believe he played there for Germany when they won the World Cup. Um, I think he played during that, that World Cup maybe a little bit at right back, but wasn't a key part of Germany winning it. So in terms of options, we've got, I don't discount Mustafi because he did play as a right back quite a bit um, for Germany and I think for Valencia as well at times. So in terms of options, in terms of numbers, when everyone is going, we need to go into the transfer market and buy uh, a right back. And I think there may be some need to do that in the summer. But right now, with funds limited and everything tied up in this Dennis Suarez deal, blah, 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 they'll be looking at the situation and saying, well, we've got Carl Jenkinson. We've got mm-hmm. Ainsley Maitland-Niles. We've got Stefan Licksteiner. And at a push, we've probably got Mustafi, who can play there as well. And we could dip down into the academy um, if we really, really, really got stuck. So what do you think we are going to do? I don't think we're going to buy anyone or bring anyone in. That's first. Do right. you? I mean, in terms of numbers, we've got a lot of numbers, right? It, we've got we've got quantity, but have we got quality? That's the, the that's question. the question. Yeah. Um, I don't think we will. No, uh, I I would be surprised simply because of everything we've heard about the club's limited spending power. I mean, there is an argument that you probably need a long term backup right back anyway. Yeah, actually, I, I, I mean, I've my- got a question here. If I can just, uh, it comes from. Uh, Ben, who's at Ben Venceremos, who says the club are crossing their fingers now on Bellerin, but haven't they been doing that for years? When was the last time he had competition for the right back spot? And I think it puts in the spotlight the decision to bring in Stefan Lichsteiner in the summer. I know it was free. I know he's a veteran with lots of experience who's probably good on the training ground and can bring something in that regard. But in terms of... um, the way he plays or his attributes compared to Hector Bellerin, there's too much of a contrast there for me. Like, Yeah, he's a very different kind of fullback. Exactly, and it changes the way that you play. 
So rather than having somebody who can do what Bellerin does, and I'm not saying you've got to get another Bellerin, but somebody perhaps who is a bit more stylistically similar for Bellerin would have been a better option this summer. I would agree with that. I mean, it's funny because in the first you know few months of the season, a lot of people were saying, well, is Bellerin responding to competition from Lichtenstein or is Lichtenstein giving him bits of coaching because he's playing better? But the issue is if Bellerin comes out of the team, Lichtsteiner isn't someone you can necessarily expect to replicate what he does. I mean, if you were just breaking down Bellerin's attributes and kind of putting them into a, a championship manager style search engine focused on our squad and looking at the options that we have, mm. I do think Ainsley Maitland-Niles is the guy who you would end up with, right? Because he he has that same searing pace. He has the ability to get in on the overlap. He can produce a little bit in the final third with his history as a winger. And so with Emery's fullbacks always overlapping, always being so important in, the, in that part of the pitch, yeah. he would probably be the guy that you would go for. That would be my preference. My preference would be to give him a chance. And I think it is a big, big chance for him and maybe a, a defining moment in his Arsenal career because... He's been playing here and there, uh, you know, a little bit at left back last season, left wing back. He's played at right wing back, a little bit at right back. He's been playing in the final third, uh, in the front three rather, um, you know, for certain games, Carabao Cup games, FA Cup games. He played uh, as the right hand man in the in the front three. I think this is a chance for him to either firmly establish himself as a first team player at Arsenal, even if it's not in a position he might see as his long-term or the club might not see as his long-term future. But you don't always get to choose where you play mm. when the opportunity comes. And I have some reservations, I have to say, about his concentration during yeah. games. I think that's something that he really needs to work on. He can look very good at times, but he can also look a little bit like the game passes him by, a little bit careless. And I think that's certainly something he's got to work on. But I agree with you. In terms of finding a like-for-like or or something akin to -to like-to-like replacement for Bellerin, he ticks most of the boxes um, in that regard. So if we give him a chance and it works, brilliant. We've got a player. We've got somebody who's taken an opportunity. We've got another academy graduate who's proved himself, uh, and he may well have a future either at right back or maybe uh, you know somewhere else in the team. He, he said the other week he wants to be a winger, but if it doesn't, or if he is given a chance and it doesn't work out, maybe then we have clarity on a young player, and we talk about what we uh, we talked about being a bit more ruthless, didn't we, or using our academy players as a way to solve problems in the transfer market. So if it doesn't work for Maitland-Niles and he doesn't look like a player who can step up and take that chance, maybe then we have to make a decision on him. And it's a chance for the club to get some clarity on his future and they can make a decision as to whether or not he's going to work out. If he, if they don't think he's going to work out, maybe he's a player we sell and we use that money then to, to reinvest. But I would like to see him given the chance to prove it one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I like you, saw those quotes, I think it was after the Blackpool game, saying that he sees himself as a winger. Mm. And then I think within two days, he gave an interview to Sky Sports uh, saying he saw himself as a central midfielder. So I think, you know, there's a real lack of clarity on what his best position 
might be. Um, I think we have seen much more of him in wide areas than we have centrally, and you can see why, because athletically he's got that kind of profile. I think you're right. You've got to give him the chance. If you're going to say that we're... You know, we're a club that has a strong focus on the academy that wants to bring people through. Well, this is exactly the kind of opportunity that a young player is waiting for, where a first-team player's got injured, there's a chance of spot available in the first team mm. and they have to step up. And look, it might not be in their ideal position, but it's in a, one of the positions they play. And how many times in a career have you seen that, that a young player's come into the team, you know, filling a gap and then managed to establish themselves? And they might not be you know, players that Maitland-Niles would necessarily aspire to or look up to. But if you think of somebody like, you know, a Phil Neville, a John O'Shea, I mean, they're players who came into the team as fullbacks, basically making up the numbers and ended up as central midfielders, centre-halves later in their career. But when the opportunity comes, mm. I think you've got to take it. And, you know, this is this is his time. I, I would rather I would rather give him a go and see if we can make that work and potentially promote an academy player than spend money that I'm not really convinced we have. Do you think a manager who has shown traits of conservatism and cautiousness will be prepared to do that when he does have a 35-year-old experienced player who he feels might do a job and uh, and give us something uh, secure defensively, at least. I don't think he gives you very much, if anything, at all offensively. Perhaps telling that Licksteiner wasn't even in the squad on Saturday. Yeah, I found that interesting. I mean, I, I think actually that the one who's going to push uh, Maitland-Niles for that place, I think might be Mustafi. Um, simply because, you know, Emery's used Mustafi a lot. So we know that he... He, he does sort of quite like him. And I think he has got experience and he has played right back. I think, you know, he's all right on the ball. You can see him getting forward, not as effectively as a Maitland-Niles would or certainly a Kalasnach would. Mm. But I think if he's going to go for the conservative option, I think it's uh, it's going to be Mustafi. I suppose the one thing that you might say is, you know, you said at the end of part one, you, you want us to keep the back four Mm. Does losing Hector Bellerin put that in some jeopardy? You know, might, as he did a little bit with Kalasinac in the early part of the season, might Emery say, well, I'll play Maitland-Niles, but to offer that bit of protection, I'll go with the third centre-half. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but I, I do think if you have a player like Maitland-Niles who on paper could do a lot of what Bellerin does or what Bellerin is being asked to do as a right back, I guess, would be the best way to say that. I think I think I'd like to see that. You know, I, I do worry that it might make him cautious again and go to a back three and I hate the back three. So mm. we'll wait and see what the uh, what the outcome uh, of this is, but just a, a terrible injury. So what about Jenkinson? Do you rule him out completely? I you know, I, I don't think Carl Jenkinson my mind, but yeah. I don't think he's as bad as people say. I don't think he's brilliant or anything, but I don't think he's quite the disaster zone some people make him out to be. No, no, I, I don't rule him out. And that's that's the thing. I mean, when we're looking at bringing someone in, there are lots of alternatives in place already. You know, if, if one, if Maitland-Niles is a disaster, you could turn to Mustafi or Licksteiner mm. or Jenkinson. Um so, and you know, I think we've even got a young kid coming in behind that, haven't we? Uh, is it Arce Tutu who is you know, yeah. meant to be a big prospect? So, 
I think, you know, in terms of congestion and numbers, it's not a part of the pitch we're, we're desperate to add someone in. I think in the summer when we probably let go of Licksteiner, probably let mm. go of Jenkinson, you know, then you would look at it again maybe. Mm. But um, not in any real hurry right now. OK, here's a here's a couple, right? This one comes from Dale Bennett, who's at Dale B Music on Twitter, who asks, why do you think Lacazette always gets subbed ahead of Aubameyang, even in games when it looks like Lacazette offers more to the team? which I mm. think might have been the case on Saturday. Mm-hmm. But that's followed by Michael, who's at Sisyphusa on Twitter, who says, why are people booing Emery's decision to take off Lacazette? Ran himself to a standstill for the team. We're playing a deep block, so it makes sense to keep Aubameyang's pace on uh, so Iwobi and him can break together and give us some respite. Not all substitutions are a comment on player performance. I, I, so I couldn't put it better myself, really, for me, than that second question sort of answers itself, you know. I think uh, exactly that. It's not a comment on player performance. And I, I didn't mention it in part one, but I was really disappointed, actually, about the booing of the substitution. It was weird, because, wasn't it? Yeah, especially because they booed bringing Lacazette off a few weeks ago. And his replacement, Ramsey, came on and scored within about five minutes and made everyone who booed look pretty silly. And I thought, I can't believe... And it's probably the same people, I mean, I'm making that assumption, but I can't believe you're doing that again. We're 2-0 up against Chelsea. Yeah. You know, we're cheering Olivier Giroud when he comes on, yeah, singing his song. Yeah, what the fuck? Seriously. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I like Giroud and, and everything else, but the guy has come That's on... messed up, right? No? The guy has come on to try and score against us and... People are singing his song. I know on some level you might say it's nice, it's sporting, or, you know, it speaks to his uh, popularity or whatever. But when you're booing one of our players coming off and singing a song for a Chelsea player, like, what the fuck? Yeah. And maybe it wasn't the same people, you know, but I did find that utterly bizarre. Utterly bizarre. I mean, I, I like Giroud too, but... I am also a little bit mystified at the way he's kind of been slightly mythologised since he left the club. I mean, I like him and he was good, but, you know, you'd think he was something rather extraordinary. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I just thought, you know, Emery Emery has picked a team and coached a team that is 2-0 up against Chelsea. If he thinks that's the change he needs to make, which could be for any number of reasons. We don't know what Lacazette's physical conditioning is like. It's not like Arsene Wenger was ever particularly keen to put through was, 90 minutes I either. was going to say that. Like, it's been a theme with two managers now. Yeah. That he has been used maybe a little bit sparingly or taken off because perhaps he is a guy in terms of how he plays, um, particularly in the Premier League, that doesn't necessarily finish games as strongly as he starts them. Maybe that's what mm. the physical uh, tests and stats are showing them in terms of what he produces in the final 20 minutes. You make the point, of course, uh, you know, if he can't play, how can he improve? Or, you know, is he going to score more goals against tired legs? I, I hear that. But maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's a reason why Wenger and Emery um, have been prone to taking him off. Yeah. And Aubameyang, I mean, you know, I know there are things he doesn't give you in terms of holding the ball in the same way Lacazette does, but if you watch him in the final five minutes of games, it's incredible how fresh he looks. I mean, he is extraordinary in that capacity. And actually, bringing Iwobi on, Iwobi was clearly the guy who they wanted to do the Lacazette job. You know, every one of Leno's kicks 
was aimed at Iwobi. And, mm. you know, the, the expectation was you'll bring the ball down, you'll hold it, you'll be the guy to give us an outlet and link things up. And actually, I don't know if the TV cameras caught this, but he wasn't doing a great job of it. Most of Leno's kicks were coming straight back at him yeah. as Piloqueta was winning the duels. And Socrates, at a certain point when the ball was out of play, walked 30 yards up the pitch and collared Iwobi and was screaming at him. No, so we didn't see that. Well, he was he lost he was he lost it. He was screaming at him, telling him I assume what he had to do. Yeah. From that point on in the game, Iwobi was much more physical. But it was a really interesting example of Socrates' leadership where he saw, look, you're not giving us any respite here, and that's what we require from you. And he went and made sure he absolutely knew about it. And Iwobi didn't really say anything back because Wobie's not really got that character, but the next time the ball came long from Leno, I watched him and suddenly he was all over Aspilicueta. So Right, very interesting. But, yeah, yeah, really interesting. And, you know, I, it's, I, what I'm saying is that we, although he took Lacazette off, there was a plan, I think, for someone else to to hold the ball. And, and I think with Emery's substitutions, maybe more than any manager we've ever had, it is not a comment on performance. It's almost certainly part of some scenario plan that he's envisaged previously. Or it is, you know, a very deliberate comment on performance. You know, you think about taking off Shaka and Mustafi at at West Ham. But I I do know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, Look, I I didn't really have that much of an issue with it. You know, when you come out on top and you win the game, it's difficult to criticise a manager's decisions. And people can say, well, we might have done this or this might have happened. It didn't. We won 2-0, we kept a clean sheet. Ultimately, the decisions he made won us the game or, or helped us win the game. So, um, yeah, I, I don't don't really have a problem with it. Okay, this question comes from Dan Gallien. Uh, and there have been a couple of people asking similar things. But Dan says, the split striker with a number 10 system worked well again on Saturday. Is there anyone in our squad other than Ramsey able to fill that pressing number 10 role? And if not, who should we buy this summer? That's a good question. We had one from Dan Prentice on Facebook who asked basically uh, the same thing, uh, whether we should play with that uh, split striker and and, uh, number 10, a pressing number 10, if you like, behind them. Um, It's It's, it's ideal for Ramsey, painfully, isn't it? I kind of think that from the squad of players we have, Alex Iwobi yeah, maybe. M- might well be somebody who could fulfill that role. I don't think he's quite as good technically as Ramsey. No. But I feel like in terms of the the skills he does have, like I don't see Iwobi playing his entire career as a wide player. I think he is going to move centrally at some point. So of all the players that we have in the squad at the moment, I think he's probably best suited to it if we're not using Ramsey there. As for who we should get, if it's something we're going to play on a long-term basis, it's such an important role in that particular system that you'd want to have more than one player in your team who can play it. Mm. And at the moment, we've we've got Ramsey and we've got Iwobi who can do it. So if Ramsey, if, when Ramsey goes, I think we are going to have to look at somebody who can uh, fill the gap. Yeah. Um, I mean, funnily, funnily enough... Dennis I mean, Suarez? I, I, maybe. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. it's interesting. He, he, it could be part of why he wants player. him. 
But it could be part of it. It could be part of it. I mean, funnily enough, I mean, uh, it wouldn't be the best use of him, but Torreira could probably do it, you know, because he's, Mm. I think he's really good technically and he finished the game playing as a right winger, really. Um, But, you know, that's not the best use of him. We need him further back in the pitch. I think Iwobi is a a possible contender. It's just a tricky thing. I mean, I think if you look at the squad that we've got and you've said, what does Unai Emery need more than anything else to do what Unai Emery does to play the football he wants to play... I think it is a pressing number 10. And I've thought that for some time. I, I just, I, I don't know where they are. I mean, mm. they're quite an unusual... It's not really a number 10 though, is it? It's like a number eight and a half. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Or it's a, it's a, new, it's a new model of what a number 10 might be. And actually, Ramsey, I think, is sort of perfect for it. And, I, you know, it's a shame in some ways that the first half of the season for him has been disrupted by so much in terms of the uncertainty and the contract issue, uh, because that's definitely, I think, influenced his selection. And now, of course, he's got a pre-contract with somewhere, somewhere else. And I can't have been the only person who, when he went down under that challenge, thought, well, what, what might this mean? Do you know, there was a tackle in the first half and mm. he received some treatment and you thought, well, what I actually thought was, is he going in for that challenge in March and April? And I don't say that as a question on Ramsey's character at all, but surely that must weigh on his mind. Yeah, but I know. Hang on a second. I mean, it's not a case that if Ramsey gets injured in March, that Juventus are going to cancel his contract, is it? I don't think that's how it works. I think if I you know. sign I mean, for a club, you make the commitment to sign. I know it's a, like a, a pre-contract or whatever, but if you do all the, I don't think it works like that. I think Juventus well, I mean, make a commitment to the player. The player makes a commitment to Juventus, and. You know, he could get injured in training as easily as he could get injured on the pitch. So, yeah. I, I don't know, is the honest truth. I'll, I'll try and find out because I, yeah. I'd be fascinated to know. I'll look into that about the pre contract stuff. But because, you know, I think he's, comp- if you believe the reports out of Italy, he's completed what's called the first part of his medical. Um, mm. So, I don't know to what extent that would jeopardise a deal. I also, I mean, how do you feel about. Ramsey, do you feel like now maybe there's a bit of certainty about what's happening with him? Do you think that we can sort of lean on him and and play him? Why not? He's a really good player. He's He's definitely that. He's a really good player. And I think we've been denied a really good player this season because of the uncertainty regarding his future. Um, and however you want to view that, whether you want to blame it on the player, whether you want to blame it on the club for not sorting it out sooner or, or whatever it is, the reality on the pitch is that we've been missing that player at a time when we've also been missing another uh, influential figure um, you know, who was on the bench at the weekend, Mesut Ozil. So, you know, it's, it's denied the team quite a measure of creativity, of energy, of work rate, of craft, particularly in the final third. You know, so it's no surprise that we've struggled a little bit at times without two players who can give you a lot uh, uh, from a slightly similar, similar position, even if they don't play in a similar way. Like, you know, I don't see Mesut Ozil playing that role the way Ramsey played it the other day. It's just not the way he, he operates. So mm. um, I think use him because the more quality we have in the team or in the squad on match day, the better. And right now, he is somebody who gives this team a lot. I think he's got more assists than anybody else in the team this season in the Premier League. Yeah. With six, Lacazette and Bellerin are on five. So we're without Bellerin now. 
And I don't think we should be doing without Ramsey. Um, so, yeah, look, play him. Play him, play him, play him. He's playing well. Uh, he'll give us a lot. I think he'll give you 100%. I don't think he's going to shirk tackles or, or anything like that. So uh, let's let's use him. doesn't always have to be for 90 minutes. Maybe not always from the start. He's a player who can make a, a difference from the bench as well. So mm. let's use him. Let's use uh, him. Just quickly, you touched on him there. Graham J. Hawk asked, do you think there was ever a situation that would have led Emery to use Ozil off the bench? Yeah, if we were behind. Yeah, that's I it. Agree. That's we it. were looking for a goal. Yeah, um, but, but he's back, I mean, and I don't want to get into another whole Mesut Ozil exactly. thing. I really, exactly. really don't. We've done it. Well, all. look, go on. How about this for a subject change? Mm-hmm. Uh, we had we welcome back the very handsome Olivier Giroud uh, yesterday, but Sanjeet, uh, who's at Sanjeet the idiot, <laughs> says. <laughs> Our captain put in an outstanding performance on Saturday, but let's not lose sight of what's important. I think Koscielny looks a lot more handsome this season, but my friend doesn't see it. Has absence made my heart grow fonder, or is Coz just swoonier? And on a similar theme, Nick Laney, who's at Mm. Slack Nick, says, is it just me, or is there something different about Koscielny's hair? It seems darker than before. He's definitely had something done with the hair, hasn't he? I think he so. He definitely has. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to... I don't know what. Maybe he's had a, a weave. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Let me just go back here. I'm well, gonna... maybe... A, I think a dye job, because I think he was greying, and he's less greying now. Right. I'm looking at Lauren Koscielny, 2016. To be fair, he used to cut it short at the sides and stuff, didn't he? In a he's kind of... very lustrous, definitely. Yeah. His hair looks thicker, I would say. I don't know how he's done it. He did a lot of good hair work during his time out. To be fair, I'm looking at a picture of him here against Bayern Munich in 2016. He does have the he does have the volume on top, but it was right. always cut in this kind of strange Bart Simpson-esque fashion, wasn't it? Yeah. Early yeah. early Bart Simpson when he was on the Tracy Ullman show. Um so I think he's just probably found a better hairdresser. I agree, and I think maybe a dye job. But maybe. is he more handsome? No. It's just got better hair. <laughs> but the, the, the hair makes him perhaps look a bit more handsome. I think it does. And his age, you know, he's, he's sort of uh, uh, growing into his face, as they say. Mm. <laughs> you might be right. Oh, look, yeah, people do. Men do. They're very lucky like that. Yeah. Okay, here is a question which comes from Mighty Igor at Mighty Igor. Uh, that was a great performance and result, but it looked like really hard work. I know it's not supposed to be easy. Is it reasonable to expect this squad to perform to that level consistently? Can't help but feel we still have a talent gap. And then there was another question I had, um, which I can't find, but it was similar in the sense that it was asking, you know, are we going to kick on from this result the way we didn't after the great result against Tottenham? Well... I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I really hope so because the Spurs result for all sorts of reasons felt like a massive turning point and then just didn't prove to be. Uh, and that's what made this game so big. You know, that's what made this game one that we absolutely had to win, really. Um, are we going to kick on from it? I don't know. I mean, our next three fixtures include both Manchester clubs. Mm. So mm. Difficult. I, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying this is going to spark another winning or unbeaten run. I mean, especially when we go to the Etihad, you know, my expectations there are slim. I think if we're competitive in that game, 
I'll come away quite pleased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody expects us to go there and win, that's for sure. Certainly not. No. I mean, Cardiff on the 29th, sure. I think what we have to show in the Man City away game is um, it's got to be vastly different from what we saw at Anfield. That's where I think our measure is. Uh, If we can go and, like, grind out a draw, I think that would be a fantastic result for us. But we can't get spanked again uh, the way we did at Anfield. That's got to be the first thing. And, so, and, you know, I know we had a lot of chat about systems and consistency of that. You know, the way we played against Chelsea, conceivably, could be a way to go against Man City, I would argue, because there are certain similarities in terms of the way they build up the play, although they're a lot more dangerous, I think, than the mm. Chelsea side. Um, it does look exhausting, you're absolutely right, and we are running more than we ever have. I know, I know that, that that was the most we've run in, I think, five years, but I think that's only when they started measuring that stat and keeping right. records of it. Okay. So it may well be, given the increasing fitness of all the players, the most we've ever run. Um, and I do think it'll be interesting to see maybe how that affects the squad in the final stage of the season. Bear in mind, we, we're still in the FA Cup. We're still in the Europa League. We will have played a lot of football by then. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, th- I remember Jurgen Klopp in his first season at Liverpool in the last couple of months, they looked a little bit ragged mm. because they didn't necessarily uh, have the legs. But Emery has the advantage that he was there for pre-season. He conditioned this team to do what he wants it to do. Yeah. So that might work in our in our stead. Well, just sort of on the FA Cup, who's S.H. Harrington, says, seeing as we have no players... Mm. almost certainly won't sign anyone and have basically completed it anyway should we bin off the FA Cup in our hashtag race for fourth. I can't... I don't know if you can bin it off. I don't know what no, that means, can't. really. No. I guess it means play kids. You can play kids um, if you're playing uh, Blackpool. But it, it's yeah. it's similar to the... Tottenham game in the Carabao Cup that you can't just throw out a load of kids against Manchester United. You just can't. Also, bear in mind, the league game that you've got on the Tuesday following, and the game is on the Friday, so you've got more recovery following it than you otherwise would have, is Cardiff at the Emirates. And surely you can definitely rotate in that game, I would say, and probably have enough to take three points. I don't want to be presumptuous, but... I, I would imagine that we should get through that game. I actually think there will be a couple of changes for the United game. Some enforced, obviously, with Bellerin. But yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if he rested one or two. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if he said, you know, maybe I'll spare one of Aubameyang or Lacazette, for example, from playing the full 90. Um, Koscielny maybe yeah. rested for Mustafi, for example, you know, to... Yeah. Yeah, or Koscielny plays against United and is rested for the Cardiff game to make him ready for... For Man City. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think the squad will be managed across those two games, United and Cardiff, but I don't think it will be a weakened team. And I just don't think... I think what beating Chelsea does is it gives Emery a bit of grace if the result doesn't go his way. You know, I think people will be disappointed but kind of make their peace with it because they recognise that what the season is about, above and beyond all else, is getting back in the Champions League. And unfortunately, the FA Cup as lovely as it is, doesn't help us do that. Yeah. Uh, um, but I think we've got a 
try and beat them, especially because all this noise around, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's United Revolution and seven consecutive wins. It'd be lovely to put an end to that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people forget what an annoying little prick Solskjaer was as a player. Oh, God. With his, with Just because he seems like quite a nice man now, yeah. I have not forgiven him for his crimes as a player. No, me neither. I bear grudges for a long time, and uh, there's one uh, very significant one <laughs> with me and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So, yeah, there you go. It would be nice. And, of course, probably Alexis Sanchez could be back as well. So mm. there's a, another little measure to it. But, no, I don't think you can... Uh, you can't bin off the FA Cup, uh, particularly against a team like United. You just can't. You can't absorb uh, a sound thrashing at home, regardless of how you feel like you can compartmentalize it. You know, you can say, "Oh, it's just the FA Cup. It's this. It's that." But it does have an effect. And um, yeah, yeah. Just no. I mean, I think it will be pretty strong against United because it has to be. Well, we saw with that long unbeaten run how important momentum can be. Um, and if we could get a couple of results, you know, against Chelsea and United, I sort of think almost irrespective of what happens at the Etihad, it will really inject some, some life into this season. Okay. Um, quick one here from Jacob Olausen. It might be Jakob, not sure. And he says, could Callum Chambers be a useful player to Arsenal next season? I, I bring this one up because did you see Chambers play against Spurs yesterday? I didn't watch that game. Well, thank goodness, because it had a yeah. very painful ending. I saw, just as I was uh, doing something else, right at the end, the uh, the fact that they had scored. So oh, I'm glad I'm glad I didn't. I will defer to you on this, because I did see you mention it on Twitter about how uh, people have been saying that Chambers is, is performing pretty well for Fulham, despite the fact that, that Fulham are playing poorly. It was quite interesting. Yeah. He got a lot of praise as well for the the performances he had while at Middlesbrough, a Middlesbrough team that ended up being relegated. So mm. is it a case that Chambers has qualities that we can't get out of him? Or is he someone who has enough quality to look good when everyone around him is kind of shit? What do you think? I think it might be the latter. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I keep tabs on uh, lone players in the most scientific way possible, which is by looking at what fans of the team they're on loan with say about them on Twitter, uh, which <laughs> is an absolutely you know foolproof strategy. But in the early part of the season, uh, there was a lot of criticism of Chambers. He was playing in the back four, often as a right back, sometimes as centre-half. And Fulham, as we all know, have a terrible defence. It was particularly bad under Jokanovic at the start of the season. And Chambers was mm. clearly suffering then. But since Ranieri brought him back into the team as a central midfield player, because uh, Chambers was on the bench at one point and not even in the starting lineup, Fulham, he's now playing central midfield and has become absolutely one of their most important players. Um, and he was their best player against Spurs yesterday. And I know they lost the game, but particularly in the first 45 minutes, he was brilliant. I mean, I've never seen Chambers play central midfield that well. He was strong. He was winning a lot of tackles. The most impressive aspect of his performance was the range of his passing. At one point, he played a brilliant uh, sort of 40-yard pass out to the left wing to launch a counter-attack. He, he almost created a goal with a, a back heel assist on the edge of the box. Wow. He, yeah, he was playing at a technical level that I haven't really seen. And I think you, you, you might be right suggesting, you know, is he someone with the quality to shine when there's maybe that, not that much around him? Maybe there's a psychological component as well where 
he looked like a player absolutely full of confidence playing for Fulham. And he felt like he was the main man. And I suppose when he comes into Arsenal, you know, he's always kind of on the fringes. He's always fighting for his place. And maybe that affects his comfort level. But I know he had a few decent games towards the end of last season. Um, I'm not convinced he'll have a future at Arsenal just because I think he's a saleable asset and he's not necessarily someone who we need. Um, and so I could see us maybe letting go of him, but I'm pleased for him that he's mm. he's doing all right at Fulham, and it's interesting to see that he's doing it as a central midfielder. You know, it's something Arsene Wenger talked about in the past. I wasn't necessarily convinced it would be where he'd settle, but yeah, it's, to be, yeah. Wenger's Wenger said that about a lot of players that they're going to be yeah, a great a defensive midfielder. Oxley Chamberlain, Maitland Niles, Callum Chambers are, are all on that list. I mean, I, I find the Chambers thing quite confusing in general because he signed a new deal at the end of November 2017 and then got a new deal last summer and then within four weeks of Unai Emery saying uh, Callum Chambers is you know part of my first team plans he was being loaned out to Fulham so I, I can't really make a lot of sense of what's going on with him or how he's viewed by the club because if he'd just been loaned out I would have said okay that's the beginning of the end. But why did we give him a new deal and then decide we were going to loan him out, particularly when he just signed a new deal the previous November? So there's something weird going on, or certainly there's something about Callum Chambers that is out of the ordinary uh, mm. in terms of how he's viewed by by somebody at the club who's sanctioned a new deal for him six months after giving him one um so I just, I, yeah, I mean, that's I'm, what gives I'm me some sh- pause for thought in terms of whether he's in or out. Um, I suspect, like you, his future might lie elsewhere, but I do think the way the whole thing has been handled has been a bit strange. Yeah, I can only think that maybe that first New Deal, in inverted commas, was maybe like a triggered extension and then they had a renegotiation, but... I don't know. I mean, it's protecting an asset, which is a smart thing to do and something we don't do often enough. So I don't want to judge it too harshly. Um, and, you know, if you're looking at ways to re- uh, raise revenue, selling a promising young English player, given their market value, is yeah. a way to do that potentially. So it, hopefully it'll be a win-win for us at yep. the end of the season. We'll wait and see. All right, we are going to call it quits for this particular episode. Thank you, as always, for being with us. We really do appreciate it. If you are someone who uses iTunes and you feel like giving us a rating or a review, that would be fantastic. Um, we will have a podcast on Friday. I'm sort of away a bit this week, but James, you're going to get something together and I'll I'll piece the whole thing together. We will have a preview podcast of the Manchester United game for you uh, on Friday, as usual, and We'll be back uh, next week to discuss whatever the hell has happened on the Friday night FA Cup night. Uh, Hopefully good things for Arsenal. Um, So until then, take it easy. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.